0: Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name's Dan Martin, special effects artist and podcaster, and I'm joined, as
1: ever, by my lovely co-host... Sam Ashurst, and I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I'm very excited to be doing another Arrow Academy title. Um, Now, this is a film that I suggested after Possessor made me think of it um watched Possessor at the London Film Festival and um yeah I hadn't thought of being John Malkovich for a while but it popped into my head and and yeah later in the podcast I'll be talking to Brandon Cronenberg about what he thinks of being John Malkovich but before I do that Dan how do you feel about the film I really
0: like it it's been ages since I've seen it yeah, and I've same. forgotten
1: big chunks in the middle
0: <laughs> like I'd remembered all the broad strokes but like I'd remembered it being very good I hadn't remembered the ways in which it was specifically very good yeah it's just a really neatly it's incredibly well written and just yeah very satisfying
1: yeah absolutely um i think we're in a very similar boat here because i watched this film quite a lot when it came out you know on on repeat because it was unlike anything i'd seen before yeah. um but i haven't really watched it since and and like you i'd actually forgot i hadn't forgotten the middle as much but i'd forgotten how much build up there was and kind of how weird the world is before we get to the premise and it actually takes a little longer to get to the premise than you'd expect in a traditional script it's around 28 minutes in which is around six to eight minutes after it should arrive, depending on which script writing book you've been reading. But obviously, <laughs> this, this is not this has not been made according to the rules of Save the Cat. Um, it is not a typical script. Uh, but as you say, Dan, it is an amazing script. It's just beautifully written. Yeah, I mean, I think that's
0: the that's the amazing thing about it is that there were a lot of people read it and said it was amazing, and a lot of people said you're never going to be able to make this and then eventually the stars aligned and I'm very glad they did because it's it's excellent but it is it's it's less unique now because it's had such a big influence on what came after it but at the time it was like yeah like you said like nothing I'd seen
1: yeah i i this is another one of those discs similar to Withnell and I where the soul of the project is really captured in the extras if that makes sense um yeah like the the journey it's really beautifully expressed across the extras on this disc and the extras kind of have a sense of humor of their own that matches the um because you know this is a comedy uh kind of above all else but um a little bit more than that too it's quite profound i think um yeah just an incredible movie and an incredible disc yeah it's interesting
0: because i think a lot of the things it ends up speaking to looking back on it are things that possibly Jones and Kaufman themselves hadn't really experienced a great deal by this point in their careers like they were both established they were both respected in their fields but it was Jones's first feature it was relatively early in Kaufman's feature writing credits but it's but it ended up sort of and Malkovich talks about this in the that really great interview he does with Hodgman amazing where it ends up being very much about the kind of ownership that the public feel they have over public figures
1: yeah totally yeah yeah absolutely and and yeah i i loved all that stuff and and that interview talks a little bit about um the idea of social media and how it kind of um was a precursor to the entitlement and sense of ownership like say that that people have over famous people now and you know the twitter feed is essentially a tunnel into a celebrity's mind or at least yeah you know what they want you to see um i love what malkovich says in that interview which is as you say unreal really excellent really open i loved it so much but i especially loved what he said it's almost a throwaway comment but he said that fans like fans are people that probably like true fans are people that probably wouldn't come up and say hello um, pres- yeah. presumably because they're too intimidated or, you know, for a whole host of other reasons. Um, and I've got an example of this. I, um, I've never actually interviewed Martin Scorsese and it is a great sadness for me, um, because he is God to me. I love Scorsese so much as, as everyone who listens to this podcast knows. Um, uh, but a few years ago I walked past him in New York. I was visiting a friend and, um, Yeah, he walked in front of me out of a hotel and then waited beside a car. And it was like there was such an opportunity for me to go over and, you know, say hello or ask for a selfie or whatever. And, you know, we made eye contact. Right. But I just kept walking (laughs) because I didn't want to. I mean, my motivation was I didn't want to make a bad impression on Martin Scorsese. You know, he might be busy. But, but yeah, um, I, I loved all the stuff about fans and fandom in that discussion. Yeah, it's, it's really
0: interesting because it kind of doubles up with that, the idea that a lot of the assumptions about the life of a celebrity are kind of false because we only know about the external version of them, the bit that, that the outside can see. Because we don't have access to the inside of their heads, we don't realise that actually, you know, they've dealt with a lot of the same shit that we have. I mean, you know, obviously... A lot of them are doing. I, I real as I as I say this, I realise that when I said that Jones maybe hadn't experienced as much of that uh, by this stage in his career, I've just remembered who he was married
1: to. Well, exactly. Um, <laughs> so yeah. So the, is he? Are they still married? He was married mm. to
0: Sophia Coppola.
1: Yeah. At so, the time. So no, they're not married anymore. In fact, I think she calls it her practice marriage. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and he actually um, he proposed to her the day before she started shooting The Virgin Suicides. Um, oh, wow. Which, which is obviously another amazing movie released in 1999. And I would like to get onto 1999 as a, a kind of amazing cinematic year. But yeah, there's that lovely bit in the interview, isn't there, where Malkovich is talking about Francis Ford Coppola bigging up spike jones and saying we'll all be working for him one day yeah um and you know knowing that he was kind of a, a father-in-law to be at that point makes it kind of doubly sweet i think um but yeah you were saying that he had experienced fame and like he made music videos and i think he he did stuff um he did the Darth, the amazing daft punk video didn't he what else did yeah. he done? I think well, he stuff were, with the Beastie he, Boys. Is that right?
0: Yeah, he'd done Beastie Boys. Uh, I assume he'd done Bjork by this point because yeah. him and Gondry were interview, introduced via Bjork. So, yeah, he'd certainly, he'd certainly been a lot closer to that world of, like, big celebrity than most people. But, yeah, like, before I say the next bit, I realise we haven't addressed the storyline. And while it is one of the bigger titles we've talked about, there are, as we have discussed in the past, always possibly people who haven't seen these things so shall we cover the
1: yes dan please tell me the story of being john malkovich as best you can being john malkovich is
0: a heavily camouflaged meta film (laughs) (laughs) about the struggle of an artist in a very niche art space realizing that he can hijack an artist in a slightly less niche art space by way of a very peculiar tunnel that he discovers in a very peculiar office that gives him or anyone who travels down it 15 minutes in the surprisingly mundane life of John Malkovich as a spectator from
1: inside his head yeah and the 15 minutes thing is obviously quite important isn't it yeah,
0: absolutely. It's well, I mean, aside from the fifteen minutes of fame yeah. thing, which is a, a nice, uh, a nice touch. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a there's a time limit at the beginning that needs to be overcome if uh, if desires are to be met.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, yeah, it's it. It's just if you haven't seen it, if this is kind of your first kind of experience of hearing about it, then um, we're we're not going to spoil it. Don't worry, but um, you really, really should get this disc it's one of the best things arrow's ever released um in terms of the whole package but yeah i i just think it's really i was expecting it to feel more dated to be honest but it's not in in a very kind of strange way It, it not only did it kind of uh foresee social media it's also quite a lot of meme culture in there isn't there um like malkovich becomes a meme that spreads
0: yeah yeah i guess I think the the thing that stops it feeling dated is that it doesn't really care about fashion. Like yeah. there's not it's not about style at any point. Everyone's very bland, very beige in their um in their getup, and as a result it becomes slightly
1: timeless in its aesthetic. Absolutely. And I, I think kind of culturally it's quite interesting as well. Um I really on this watch, I loved the stuff with Lottie, um Cameron Diaz's character. Um, The moment after she first comes out of um, the the experience um, and talks about how she feels like herself as John Malkovich and kind of realising that she's transsexual. Now, I know some of that is played as a joke, but I actually think it's a relatively advanced take on gender identity for the time. Cameron Diaz plays the thrill of the experience really, really well um, in that car journey on the way back. It feels really positive. Uh, And it's important to remember this was released in the same year as The Matrix, which was made before the Wachowskis had fully found their true identities. Um, And and that film feels like it's exploring some of the same themes of identity as being John Malkovich, you know, in a a different way. But, yeah, I just love all the stuff with Maxine and Lottie. It's really great. And a lot of trans narratives had unhappy endings at this time like boys don't cry was also released in 1999 but yeah but but that's all i'll say about that because i don't want to um spoil anything but um yeah what did you think of that thread did it jump out to you or not yeah i mean it's definitely present i think an interesting i hadn't thought about
0: it in comparison to the matrix and it's their interesting companion pieces insofar as the matrix is about discovering that an external force has imposed uh, a uh, a world upon you a life upon you
1: mm.
0: whereas this and it's only a comparatively small part of being dr but but this is about discovering that there are other options out there yeah so they're kind of coming at the same thing from two different uh two different angles whereas one is like this is the world as well it's different but
1: they ultimately boil down to this is the world as presented and yet there is more exactly and there is a route to an awakening, yeah, through kind of consciousness um, or or experimenting with uh, consciousness. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just think 1999 in general was a year when kind of small personal stories went big and directors took wild left turns. And there were just so many stories like being John Malkovich that were unlike anything outside of maybe literature Um, Or if they were familiar, like, you know, The Matrix, they were putting some new twist onto genre, you know, stuff like Magnolia Fight Club, um, The Straight Story, Eyes Wide Shut, Rushmore to a certain extent. Yeah, it was just a really interesting year for original stories that took audiences on a journey that, that they hadn't necessarily experienced before. Are you a fan of 1999? What are some of your favourite movies from that year, Dan? I hadn't really thought of it in this reg- in these regards, but listening to you list
0: the films, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have the same peculiar ability to recall the exact year a film was released as you do, without looking <laughs> it up. <laughs> and it is always whenever I make my notes for one of these recordings, one of them is always going to IMDb and diligently writing down all the years for any <laughs> film I'm going to mention. <laughs> so i have a little bit of context for it um yeah i mean it's interesting like hearing that list and and hearing you talk about it it feels almost like it's a little bit like what was happening in the 70s Mm. with the with the young filmmakers being allowed to kind of do their stuff and i wonder if there were similar reasons perhaps for risks being taken in hollywood
1: yeah that's interesting well yeah, I don't know because, bear in mind, back then, people legitimately thought the world was going to end. People thought that in 1999, the Y2K bug was going to kick off. And I know it's a joke now, but honestly... And if that didn't, then, 2012 was going to get us. <laughs> yeah, but no, back then it was a really serious concern. Like, you know, like politicians and filmmakers and, and all sorts, Like they made significant plans to protect themselves from the bug it was bizarre um but yeah there was kind of a real end times feel to to the movies being made at that time i don't know if that's a factor but but yeah you're right i mean some of the films that i didn't list stuff like three kings um the sixth Sense, blair witch project um thin red line like these are all very unique even if they're you know war movies or horror films they were doing stuff that war movies hadn't really done before, um, or, you know, the Blair Witch Project was a completely original reinvention of, of, of genre at the time. Yeah, it's no, it's I, just, I don't know. It's just an interesting I, I year wonder, anyway. I wonder how much
0: the, the Blair Witch Project kind of redirected stuff. Like, thinking about things like John Malkovich, the idea that actually they were taking... Uh, like sort of not massive but respectable budgets for small directors yeah. who had maybe established themselves in one arena but weren't proven in the cinematic arena. You know that feels like that's a direction. But then when the Blair Witch project comes out, all the studios go, oh, oh, we can make really cheap movies,
1: right? Yeah, God, you. I mean, yeah, you're you're probably onto something there because a lot of this stuff, a lot of these films. I mean, look at Fight Club. That's kind of a perfect example. Maybe yeah, yeah if, if, if you release Fight Club and the Blair Witch Project in the same year, you kind of see what direction the studio is going to go in, I guess. But um, yeah, and, and Magnolia, you know, all of these kind of mad, mad movies that um, people would struggle to make today on there. You know, for Paul Thomas Anson, it was kind of his third film, Magnolia. I guess some of these directors were experienced, but still very young. Green, yeah. Yeah, anyway, I've waffled enough about that. Um, extras, what were some of your favourite extras, Dan? I
0: was fascinated by the little note that the uh, Michel Gondry commentary had been edited from the version that appeared on the Criterion disc. Did you dig into this? Because I just assumed that was a joke. Well, um, so I, I wrote it off as a joke, but it played in the back of my head. yeah. Uh, and so I tried to hear... But because it's a selective scene commentary anyway... Yeah. It's quite hard to work out whether it's been trimmed. But, you know, there's so many, like, uh, let's fuck with them ideas.
1: Exactly. It it feels like that's that's them fucking with you. And, like, the whole tone of, um, of that commentary is just amazing. Like, the fact that he's pissed off that um, he says he's been tricked into <laughs> doing it, like... You know, doing <laughs> he's like... How, he didn't make this movie you know why is he talking about it um but there's still like it's interesting hearing about his friendship and stuff um with spike jones um yeah it's a it's a funny commentary and definitely worth listening to
0: Um, yeah and the insight of a the insight of another director reading it at that stage as well like watching it develop and someone who knew spike before that and, and knew his work and watching him create this thing it's it's yeah it's a really good commentary
1: And uh, did you spot the David Fincher cameo in the film, Dan? I didn't, but I'm not sure I'd recognise David Fincher on the street, to be honest. Well, um, yeah, his face has been around a lot this weekend. We're recording this uh, episode on the weekend that David Fincher said a series of controversial things. Uh, You know, the stuff about Orson Welles, um, you know, being the master of his own uh, demise artistically. Uh, because uh, he's a bit too up himself. He also said that Joker, um, I think, is insulting to the mentally ill, something like that. Um, and he also said that he's going to do a mini series about cancel culture. Um, and all of this, all of this made social media very ha- unhappy this weekend. So I've seen his face quite a lot <laughs> on social media. But um, yeah, it, it's quite a funny cameo. He, he basically plays like an art critic. Um, talks about Malk- Malkovich being a technical genius, which is obviously something that people say about Fincher. Um, so yeah, keep an eye out for it, Arrowheads, when you're watching it again. Um, this was the <laughs> first time I'd noticed it. So um, on can you rewatch. tell us where it is, or are you going to yeah. leave it for people to figure out? It, it's basically it, it's it's part of the kind of montage that comes later on in the film. That's all I'll say. Um, Near the, Sean Penn. Yeah, exactly. Near Sean Penn and Brad Pitt pops up briefly as well. Um, With Jennifer Aniston on his arm. Yes, yes. Oh, man. I, I just, I really, really loved revisiting this. And um, yeah, if you're like us and you haven't seen it for a while, I, again, I really recommend buying it because it's there's something about this film. I'm not sure if it's the narrative or, or what, but you forgot elements of it. I forgot elements of it. And John Hodgman comments on b- yes blocking stuff out like there's a whole get out subplot that i completely forgotten about like there's one moment that's just so get out i would anyway, i would go so far as bizarre, to say that really that is more than, than like, more than a subplot but yeah well, well you you think well oh okay yeah yeah but no i i i I would argue that oh yeah that's a good point
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, someone put it to jordan peele in an interview That uh what get out was a sequel to being John Malkovich. That's fucking incredible. What did he say? Uh he said while he hadn't considered that himself, he was happy for it to be considered canon, I think.
1: (laughs) I love that. Absolutely love that. That is I haven't I haven't read the interview. I've only
0: I've only heard someone talking about the interview, so I don't know. But but yeah, I think I think basically he likes it and he embraces it.
1: Yeah, good, good, because there's definitely a a very strong connection there. Um, Very, very strong connection. Um, Uh, Right, go
0: on. Before we we move on, you know how you love it when I have a quiz for you? Oh, fucking hell. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In the special features on the puppeteering... Yeah. When the two puppeteers, the two puppet makers who made all the the marionettes for the film are talking... I noticed in the background on the shelf of stuff behind them, they had a little, um, being John Malkovich Babushka doll, like a nesting doll, Russian nesting doll. Uh huh. And I thought, well, they didn't make that because that's not their kind of thing. And it sat there amongst all these puppets and and like Spice Girls toys and the things that they did make.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so I looked up what it was because it's a logical thing, you know, people within people within people. Yeah. And it turns out that for the American dvd they did a special edition in the states that came with a being john malkovich babushka doll with which with each of the characters printed on the next size down okay and it ended up winning best merchandise at some kind of merchandise awards in america okay so i'm going to read you the runners-up and you're going to tell me what the merch was oh what are you kidding me right okay fine (laughs) so some of them are super easy like what did they there are only three what did they give away with the special edition of fight club in america uh bar of soap it was a bar of soap of course it was a bar of soap what did they give away with the blair witch project in america
1: like the, the sticky figure the the thing they hang up stick exactly
0: a little stick man exactly and what did they give away with the special edition of
1: american pie in america Uh, american pie it now the temptation here is to go for a pie but obviously that you know it's not a pie it's not a pie i know i know i'm just working it through in my head i know it's not (laughs) a pie because you can't you know it'll go off is it a flute dan (laughs) go off (laughs) No, it was a gym sock. Ah. Well, two out of three ain't bad. I'm two happy out of three ain't bad. Can do another who, quiz. Who,
0: who wants to be given
1: a fucking gym sock with a copy of American, American Pie? Literally no one. I would rather have the flute. So, um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, should we move on to recommendations based on this film? Um, yeah, absolutely. I am going to go first because you just did a quiz. So, and I, you know, I I worry that we have the same, at least one uh, of the same I reckon we do, but we'll see. Do you have, Dan, Strange Days? I do not. Yes, fantastic. Um, It's a great film. Now, Strange Days wasn't released in 1999, but it was set in 1999. So it kind of ties with being John Malkovich on that level. It's also weirdly prescient. It predicts everything from this year's, um, black lives matter uh, protest to uh you know the prodigy smack my bitch up i think that's probably uh, was influenced by strange days um the action sequences are insanely good the opening set piece is unreal and very influential on the matrix which we've already discussed um, yeah. matrix feels like a bit of a remix of this film at points um loads of like easter eggs and potential references between the films like in the matrix neo is a counterfeit program seller and lenny nero neo nero is a black market memory disc dealer Um, but anyway it's a film that politically could have been made this year it feels so relevant and its connection to being john malkovich is uh it's it's a noir that revolves around the premise that um you can buy floppy disks with people's memories on them you put like a squiddy thing on your head and uh you basically travel back into those memories and the way it's shot is very very similar to the way um the john malkovich pov is shot uh, in being john malkovich so um yeah it, it's like that but more action-based um written by james cameron directed by Catherine bigelow it should be a, a, a bigger film than it is uh, I rarely see that's people amazing. talking about Strange Days Like it doesn't have the reputation for some reason that, that so many of these kinds of films do um,
0: I, I think I think this is a case of silent partnerism where right. it's just like we're inured so we don't realise how fucking horrible it is right. like it's Right. got some stuff in it that's really bleak it's really
1: hard to watch yeah, and that, that kind of put me... It's what put me in mind of the Black Lives Matter protests because, yeah. you know, a lot of those videos that, that were going around this summer, like, it, it's just... It's sad and scary how little has changed that 15 years later, um, you're, you're watching the same things play out in reality that kind of play out in this film. It is it is a tough watch in places, for sure. But it is just, and it's, you know, uh, two, nearly two and a half hours long as well. Um, yeah. Uh, which I'd kind of forgotten. It kind of feels like a 90-minute movie, but it's it's a long film. Um, but it flies by, uh, and great characters, great costumes, just everything. It's just a fucking amazing film. So I really do feel like a, a people, there will be a handful of people listening to this who haven't seen Strange Days. It's out on Blu-ray. You can buy it for under a tenner on Amazon, and I just massively recommend it. Um, so yeah,
0: does it um, does it still have that amazing audio commentary that was on the Laserdisc? There's uh, Catherine Bigelow describing it, how they made the opening sequence, and then the rest of the film is just yes. a lecture she gave, <laughs> and that's nothing to do with the rest of the film.
1: Yes, that, that's that's it. So, yeah, it, it's got the, the opening sequence commentary and, and a featurette as well, um, like awesome. a six-minute thing. But um, So it is crying out for an Arrow video to um, release it. It'd be a perfect Arrow video film. Um, but, yeah, we have no control over these things. Dan, what would you like to recommend based on being John Malkovich? Um, well, I mean, I, you know,
0: normally i I recommend weird stuff but I think recently I've been a little bit more accessible uh this one's pretty heavily accessible it's a um it's a I had thought in my memory that it was a script of Kaufman's from before John Malkovich but uh it's actually 2002 it's um uh George Clooney directing uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind oh nice one yeah which I fucking love absolutely love it like i i'm sure I, f- I feel like i watched it before i watched being Malkovich, but i watched both of them when they were new so i can't have but it's another one that sort of blurs the lines between like real people uh, reality and fiction recollection um it's got sort of pseudo documentary aspects to it but for the most part it's a pretty standard narrative movie Clooney absolutely fucking smashes it as a director. It's his directorial debut. I've always really enjoyed his stuff, even the less successful stuff like Leatherheads. But like Eyes of March, uh, like his output in general is very, very good. There are two camera tricks, like technical things, like little showpieces in Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, which are absolutely fucking beautiful. Mm. Um, And they are made only better by the fact that to be able to do one of them they couldn't afford a piece of camera kit for it. But where they were filming, which I think was in Eastern Europe, was next to where they'd just finished filming Pluto Nash, that awful Eddie Murphy movie. You take that so... back. <laughs> uh, I, cried. I cried at Pluto Nash. There you go. Yeah, I got sent a review copy of it. I was still writing for magazines at the time. And, uh, and I came home from the pub on a Friday night, very, very drunk, and I put on Pluto Nash... And I was too drunk to reach the remote control to turn it off. And I actually <laughs> cried
1: because I couldn't make the film stop. You see, it's an emotional roller coaster. Put that on the poster. <laughs> Brilliant. But,
2: but yeah, they stole yeah, a piece
0: of camera equipment from Pluto Nash to be able to shoot stuff in Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. They climbed over the, a fence at the lot, this Eastern European movie lot, and
1: stole a piece of camera equipment. Fantastic. Fantastic, love it. Yeah, no, yeah, great recommendation. Great movie. My one, my next recommendation based on the, being John Malkovich is ant kind Now, this is a book, not a film, um, but it revolves around a puppet-obsessed loser featuring real-life famous people, which sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's Charlie Kaufman's debut novel. It's hilarious it offended mark Commode, which is also a little bit hilarious sorry mark i'm sure i would have reacted in exactly the same way if uh, is mark in it yeah he's in it he's in it oh wow yeah i mean it's cl- it's a tongue in cheek re- it's quite bitter the reference there's a lot of <laughs> um it's just a very strange book dan it's it's about a um a, a film critic who um finds this incredible super long like days long movie this super rare movie that apparently changes the world and changes his consciousness and all of this but then unfortunately it gets burnt into pieces it's a puppet movie and so he gets obsessed with the idea of trying to recreate it um and you get his thoughts on culture and on um various real life film figures and also some made up um film figures Uh, And, yeah, it's kind of a satire of lots of different things, um, including um, Hollow Virtue Signalling. Yeah, it's a weird book, but I loved it. (laughs) Uh, It's one of my (laughs) books of the year. Um, So, yeah, just basically imagine being John Malkovich with uh, a, a runtime that lasts a month and that's basically this book um so yeah if that sounds appealing to you and once again sorry mark mode i'm i'm only joking that or making light of the fact that it offended you i'm sorry if it genuinely hurt your feelings uh yeah yeah, i I love i love that you think that mark uses any of his valuable time to listen to this podcast (laughs) Well, he took some of his valuable time to read the book and tweet about it. So you never know. You never know where he might get insulted. And I certainly don't want to insult Mark you um, Yeah, we're you know, not Charlie Kaufman, though, <laughs> are
0: we?
1: Huh? I missed that We're not
0: Charlie Kaufman.
1: That's true. That's true. But we do have the best podcast um, available on iTunes. Please do review us. Please do rate us. Please do share <laughs> us with your friends. But just don't send it to Mark Mode. All right, good. Dan, what's next from you?
0: <laughs> well, I was uh, originally my my top choice for this slot was going to be David O. Russell's uh, Three Kings. Um, oh, nice. Because it's fucking amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's got uh, Spike Jones in it. Yeah. Um, and obviously Clooney, who directed Dangerous Mind. I, I. I kind of wonder if they were talking and on set and jones was like you gotta fucking meet my friend charlie he's an amazing writer especially for a date for a first time director <laughs> but i'm not going to recommend that because you mentioned it in the podcast earlier so I'm oh, going to sorry go to my backup that's no, fine it's all right which is legend of the sacred stone which is an all marionette martial arts film
1: from 2000 <laughs> thank god i mentioned three kings then because this is a wonderful recommendation um please talk talk about this perfect film uh i mean fuck man i've only got it on
0: vhs i've not seen it for absolutely years uh i was watching malkovich and i thought i want to revisit sacred stone actually what what i was doing was i was watching the interview with the marionette artist who takes himself very seriously on the uh, on the disc Brilliant. and i thought i want to rewatch legend of the sacred stone because he was yeah he was he was being a, a, a pretty traditional puppeteer <laughs> in how he was talking about how important what he does is <laughs> um but yeah legend of the sacred stone is absolutely beautiful I I, I I don't really know how to it's directed by a chap called chris huang it's literally the only thing he did uh, or at least it's the only thing on imdb that he did uh, imdb is not great with asian cinema mm. but it's it, it's literally just a, like a massive epic scale martial arts film um about trying to stop some demons from getting a magic rock uh, but it's all done with marionettes and it's got all the sort of like the magic wuxia stuff that you love from the more fantasy end of the shaw brothers but with puppets
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, Just imagine the Dark Crystal meets Shaw Brothers and and that's basically the film. It's fucking fantastic. That's exactly right. So, yeah, wonderful recommendation. Watch that above anything else we mention. I have no Um, idea where you'll find it. Well, you know, like say, sidestep to the left, sidestep to the right, knock on wood five times and it will appear in your hand. Um, As we said last time, this is how you find Dan's films. You have to embark on a magic journey. Um, (laughs) you do not have to embark on a magic journey to watch the first recommendation from the past couple of weeks from me Uh, that is the new criterion release of the new world which is out i think it's out on december the 14th now this is a stunning three disc release of one of my favorite malik movies um you get three versions including a new 4k digital restoration of the 172 minute extended cut of the film but more than that there's so many beautiful extras really great interviews and a lovely piece on how the film was edited into three versions going into the differences between the cuts um it is cineast heaven the film is a poem that you don't so much watch as experience this is an essential buy thank god criterion does uk discs now This is one of my all-time favourite releases. So, yeah, The New World out on December 14th, I believe. I think it's a bit more expensive than the other Criterions. I think it's like 26 quid or something like that. But, you know, you do get quite a lot for that money. And if you're a fan of this film, then, uh, like I say, it's heaven. So, yeah, The New World, uh, I recommend it. Dan, what have you been watching over the past couple of weeks?
0: Uh, I just want to let you know that there is one copy of Legends of the Sacred Stone, uh, the two-disc DVD, available yes. on eBay, and it's a steal at ninety-nine dollars plus eight dollars and ninety-eight cents shipping.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I never let it. <laughs> never let it be said that Dan's recommendations are not accessible if you're rich.
0: hundred oh dollars, Jesus Christ! hundred dollars. I mean, it's that, good. I but hope that's just. I hope that's just some fucking chance and that there's actually...
2: Yeah. No,
0: Blu-ray.com doesn't have anything for DVD or Blu-ray in America. Nothing. Oh, my goodness. Well, there you go. There's one for... Uh, let's say Third Window. Arrow have a good relationship with Third Window. Maybe yes. we can persuade someone over at Fantastic Third Window to to release Legend of the Sacred Stone because it really uh, is a treat. Do you remember yeah. Strings that came out a few years later and I had really high hopes for, but it was really horribly dubbed in English? And I yeah. never managed to track down the original language version. I should re uh, I should revisit that. That was another Asian marionette movie. But in that, the strings were like part of the narrative, like the right, the, yeah, the threads that that carried them around were like were their religion essentially. And yeah. it was a really great idea. But I couldn't make it through the film because the dub was so horrible.
1: <laughs> it was kind of like the Force, wasn't it? Um, yeah, That's yeah, it. yeah, exactly like that. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Um, yes, please someone someone released this film it's fun for all the family um yeah damn it yeah it's really good fun right so my dollars. first recently
0: as uh, as of when we're recording this it comes out next friday so when this is released it will have just come out uh definitely vod i think on uh, uh on physical media as well um it's another one from anti-worlds who we have talked about occasionally uh who have a very good track record so far they're a relatively new distribution company uh, it's called de patrick or just patrick it's uh a film that uh it's belgian i think mm-hmm. uh yeah it's belgian and it's about a young man a youngish man he's <laughs> he's in his he's in his late 30s processing grief he's he's very heavily autistic and he's processing grief through the mystery of his lost hammer which he is which becomes increasingly more and more important to the the rest of the world around him it's Mm -hmm. also set at a nudist on a nudist colony right and so it is absolutely wall-to-wall naked old people so be be warned, but it's absolutely fantastic, and it has a and it has a fully naked fist fight in it. I oh, mean it's got Jermaine Clement
1: in it as well. So there oh, you go. Wow. I mean, lots of lots of reasons to watch that one. Okay, cool. I'll I'll see if I can um, get a link to that from Zoe. Sounds very interesting. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, brilliant. Um, well, my uh, final recommendation is Storyville. Pepe the Frog feels good, man. Now I saw this in yeah. Fantasia when it was just feels good, man. Um, but this is probably my favourite documentary of the year. So I'm really, really happy that Storyville picked it up and have made it available uh, on uh, the BBC iPlayer. Um, It's incredible and probably more of a comfort viewing experience. Now Trump is uh, about to be kicked out of the White House um, because it's about how a stoner comic character became an icon for the alt-right and may have helped guide uh, Trump to the presidency. And it tracks the creator's journey as he watches his really sweet creation slip through his fingers and onto the pages of the Anti-Defamation League as a hate symbol. It's an amazing story, and, and you know, not as feel-bad as you'd think. Um, I won't spoil it, but... It's very powerful and it actually made me cry and and not because I couldn't turn it off, but because it's quite a moving (laughs) story. Um, It's on iPlayer for the next 11 months, which is magnificent. Uh, But I would recommend watching it before you compile your best of the year list because there's a chance it will pop up on there. Yeah, so Storyville, Pepe the Frog, Feels Good Man, otherwise known as Feels Good Man, I highly, highly recommend it. One of the films of the year.
0: Nice, nice. My next one is currently only available on Korean Disc. It comes out in America on December the 5th on Blu-ray. Awesome. Uh, it's available for pre-order at the moment. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's called Beasts Clawing at Straws. What a title. Um, yeah, oh my God, man. It's like, imagine, so do you remember A Girl, A Gun, in A Noodle Shop?
1: <laughs> yes,
0: yeah. So this is now the most Coen Brothers Asian film. Oh wow! Okay, excellent. It's a an ensemble cast noir that follows a bag of money that has been obtained somehow. You don't know how at the beginning of the movie. The movie starts with a low, uh, a, like a, a low steady cam shot following a Louis Vuitton bag through um, a private members' like gymnasium being stuffed into a locker and then the movie splits apart and it's about all these different characters and their potential relationships to it and how they all tie together is kind of the, the real mystery of the film. It is quintessentially Korean in its uh, refusal to be one genre at any given time. It's dark and it's funny and it's got pathos and it's the tension in it is absolutely astonishing. It can turn on a time with how like stressed it can make you as its audience it's super satisfying by the end it's really light on the melodrama i'd say it's one of the more accessible uh, of the of the korean films i know that you and i sam are, are, are happy to wade through a lot of the stuff that's maybe less accessible to western audiences yeah. but i think that this one is actually very very um uh, very open to uh, to a, to a western audience yeah i don't really want to say much more about it but it's
1: it's absolutely brilliant excellent that's definitely one for my list fantastic and is that a 2020 release or yes yeah yeah, yeah. december 5th fantastic um I, I will check that for sure right that's it isn't it it's uh on to extra features extra features extra features extra features extra um, features Now, I was going to have a couple of LFF interviews this fortnight, but I think I'm going to push them to next time because we've got quite a lengthy chat with Brandon Cronenberg to play this week. And um, it does directly tie to being John Malkovich um, because there is some crossover between Possessor and being John Malkovich and even a little bit with Brandon's first film, Antiviral. Um, yeah. And the reason we're talking about uh, Possessor is that it is out this Friday on VOD. Um, obviously, the lockdown and everything changed the release plans for that, but you will be able to watch it uh, this Friday as this episode goes up. But the the 27th of November is, is basically when it's going to be available. So whenever you're listening to this, that's when it's available. Um, anyway, I'm waffling. Um, <laughs> I asked Brandon if he was a fan of being John Malkovich. And it turns out he is, but perhaps not for the reasons you'd expect. Have a little listen to Brandon. Yeah, uh, I, I've finally seen the film. Obviously, Grim showed me um, some footage on his phone at, at Cannes last year. He He's just an incredible talent and such a lovely person. I saw The Flesh Trench, for example. And yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just so like overwhelmed by it and I was so excited for it. And now I've finally seen it and it is incredible. You must be so proud and so happy to have it
2: finally in front of audiences. Absolutely, I'm I'm also very confused that we actually got to make it and that it's finished. (laughs) It it was a pretty long process, so it seems uh, like some sort of weird dream just to actually have the film done at this point.
1: Can you talk a little bit about your relationship
2: with him and how it's kind of evolved from film to film? Absolutely, I, I mean, I met Kareem on antiviral, actually. He had done hobo with a shotgun with the same producers. And so I was looking for a cinematographer and Neve and, and Fitchman, the producer, said, look, you, you can look at a variety of cinematographers for this, but Kareem is really the right one. You, you have to trust me. <laughs> and, and I met him and you know, it was love at first sight. And, and of course, that was a great experience. And since then, we did some uh, music videos together and, and we did a short film and we developed a possessor together for a very long time. Um, we lived down the street from each other actually for a number of years during development. And so I would go to his house and we would just experiment with uh, projection feedback and various lenses and gels and, and flares and anything that we could do to deform an, an image and it in this sort of collaborative, very practical way, a bank of ideas that we wanted to bring to the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I worked very closely with him and he had a huge influence on, on the work and the field of the film.
1: And, and the film explores ideas of kind of gender identity and fluidity. Um, what are your thoughts on that subject? Was that something that you wanted to explore with Possessor?
2: I mean, it's a, it's a big subject which has become, I think, uh, more at the forefront of, of public consciousness since I wrote the film. Gender exploration, when I was writing it, was more about in a personal way, how we relate to our bodies and and our identities. Um, It wasn't really meant to be a political exploration in the way that I think some of that subject matter has become political uh, since then. I think if you are making a film about someone living as someone else, then, of course, having that difference of gender is important. How do you, How are you affected by the experiences of life in someone else's body? How do you have sex in, in the body of, of someone of, a, of another gender? Uh, there have been some interesting experiments recently uh, that I also found while I was writing uh, done with VR, where for instance a, a man and a woman both have a VR helmet that also has a camera on the front of it, and they mimic each other's motions. They stand there naked and, and uh, do these choreographed movements that Make it seem like they're living in the other person's body, so that they can have this kind of uh, empathetic response uh, <laughs> to to someone of, of a different gender and know what it's like to experience their the sort of uh, biology. Um, I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking about all of that while I was writing the film, but it wasn't, it wasn't uh, really a political thing.
1: And uh, we're covering being John Malkovich uh, on this fortnights podcast. Obviously, there's some crossover. With, with both of your films in that movie. Um, are you a fan of that film? And if so, what makes it special for you?
2: I, I am a fan. And uh, although, although I haven't watched it for a long time, it, it did have a huge impact on me. I think less because of the body possession and more uh, those sorts of absurd elements like the the office building that's half a floor. I think that in particular is, uh, is you know, just the hilarious filmic world that somehow makes perfect emotional sense but doesn't really make real world sense uh, had a big impact on it.
1: obviously dan martin is is the co-host of the arrow video podcast um can you talk a little bit about what he brought to the project um i'm always amazed by dan's work but
2: this is next level from him just stunning i mean dan is uh I would say another Kareem in the sense that they're both mad geniuses. They're both fantastic at what they do. They're both encyclopedias of film knowledge. It's incredible to get them in a room together because they just will not shut up. And it's (laughs) it's an absolute delight. Um, I mean, ultimately Dan's work is incredible in in a similar way. First of all, everything he does is great. His uh, fake heads are absolutely exquisite. Uh, I've had people come up to me after the film and say, how was it possible? Like, I don't understand how you did the knife in the neck. Like, what was the process there? And, and the answer is, Dan's just very good at his job. There, it wasn't like, <laughs> it, it wasn't complicated. There, there wasn't a CGI trick there. It was just Dan being very good at making a, a fake neck and um, and the melting, same with the melting blacks' bodies. I mean, they're, they're just incredibly designed and, and painted. But also... Dan has his own interesting ideas that he's been playing with in the background. And one of the things I love about working with him is that I can say, okay, look, here is this hallucination sequence. This is just our chance to go off. You know, in the, in the script, I had some specific ideas about, you know, melting, the melting bodies, for instance, I wanted to do that. But those hallucination sequences were really written as somewhat vague, short paragraphs, Uh, where I would say, okay, it's nightmare imagery, it's flashes, the image deforms, whatever. That was sort of code uh, for me and Kareem initially, and then also Dan when he came on to say, okay, this is where we're just going to go off. We're going to treat this like its own sort of short film or music video, and just, you know, what else can we throw in here? And Dan just has so many amazing ideas, you know, some of them, uh, more ideas that we could even fit in the film, (laughs) And, and, and some of them, uh, we did like the vacuum form face, Chris's vacuum form face that he turned into a rear projection screen and then projected Andrea into the face and then tore the mask in front of it. That was a Dan idea that he wanted oh, wow. to try. It was uh, yeah, just fantastic.
1: And um, the violence is extremely important in the film, both in terms of the tone and the themes. Um, what are your thoughts on cinematic violence and, and how you explore it in Possessor?
2: I mean, in terms of cinematic violence in general, uh, I prefer it to be a bit more graphic because I think it it has a weight to it. I mean, it can be funny too. I'm not, I'm not saying violence always has to be incredibly serious, but mm. it's interesting to me that people are more disturbed by seeing violence, whereas I feel like it's more disturbing to trivialize violence if you have a, a very sterile. PG-13 action movie where everyone's dying, but no one's bleeding. It it seems like that should be more of a discussion (laughs) in terms of, you know, violence in films than actually depicting violence in in a way that disturbs people. Mm. Um, But specifically in Possessor, it was of course very narrative because uh, so much of the narrative is about Voss's character and her evolution and so much of her character is about her relationship uh, with violence. Uh, And so to show it, I thought was necessary, first of all, so people could understand what she was experiencing and react in an emotional way, but also because the violence as depicted in the film tracks with her psychology, you know, sometimes it's uh, more observational, sometimes it's very tactile, sometimes she's looking back on it and it becomes this sort of uh, almost sensual fetishistic thing in, in her memory it's just it was just too central to the narrative to, to shy away from
1: what's next for you um because obviously there's quite a big gap uh, between antiviral and possessor um have you planned your next feature uh, please tell me you're not going to take another big
2: gap <laughs> i i really hope that i don't it was definitely not intentional and <laughs> it was an absolute misery to take that long um, getting Possessor off the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have two films that are pretty close to, to being ready to happen. One is Infinity Pool, which is a tourist resort satire with some uh, science fiction and horror elements. And the other one is called Dragon, and it's a space horror, a space horror, a space horror film. Um, I'm hoping to shoot them back to back. I hope to start very soon, but uh, they a little hard to say.
1: Okay, awesome. And, and one, one final question. Um, you went to film school. Um, what was kind of the biggest lesson that you learned from film school? What, how, how did it kind of develop you as an
2: artist? The, the thing is, I don't think you learn much from film school in an academic sense, especially these days. There's so much available yeah. uh, to anyone online if, if they want to learn the theory behind filmmaking. I don't think you have to go to film school for that. Uh, what was useful to me was that I met a bunch of people there and having that, that period of time to just make short films and, and student films with other people who want to work with you and um, learning by doing is really necessary in film. And so having that space to, to kind of make mistakes and play around, uh, that, that was what was important. And, and also some of those people I've stayed in touch with, I mean, one of them uh, went on to be a producer at the company that made Antiviral and, and that, my ability to make that film was very much tied to the fact that I, I met this guy. And then I did a short, um, based on the feature script and, uh, and made it through that path.
1: And there we go. Lots of glowing lovely praise, Brandon. lovely Brandon, lots of lovely glowing praise for Dan in there. Dan hasn't listened to this yet, but I hope he does listen to it when the episode is up because because he says so many nice things about you and, and rightly so. So, um, yeah, that's it from me. Dan, do you have anything for extra features?
0: Uh, No, I would say if you do go and see, or stay in and see, I guess, uh, Possessor when it comes out this Friday, uh, if you have any questions about the effects, feel free to message me on Twitter, because, you know, sweeten the pot, I guess. (laughs) Uh, And then, just as an aside, we have been asked to mention that the Arrow Christmas sale is starting this Friday as well, November the 27th at midday, arrowfilms.com, and it's going to run until December the 11th, so... Go and check that out for lots of Christmassy stuff. I mean, the stuff itself isn't Christmassy. The discounts are Christmassy, I guess.
1: Yes, and yes, lots of presents that you can buy for yourself. Forget other people; just buy for yourself. Um, that's what Christmas is all about, right? Happy Happy
0: Christmas, Grandma. I'm sorry I can't be there. Social distancing being what it is, I hope you enjoy Killer Clowns from Outer Space.
1: <laughs> exactly. Love it. Right, let's do our social media. Uh, Dan, where can people find you? Uh,
0: I'm at Thirteen Finger Effects on both Twitter and Instagram. As the Possessor release um, rolls out, I will be allowed to post more of the behind the scenes stuff. So there'll be Ooh. more and more of that. Awesome.
1: Um, I am at Sam Ashurst23 on Instagram. I have kind of resurrected Instagram, um, so it, it might be worth following me on there. Uh, also at Sam Ashurst on Twitter. I promise not to talk about politics anymore, mostly film stuff. And I do have something to announce. So it'll either come on this show um, in the next month or so, I think. I don't know. Um, So do carry on listening to the Arrow video podcast. (laughs) But I may end up announcing it on social media. Who knows? But something big is coming. So uh, please do follow me on there and, and Dan on his and rate us, review us, share us. Yeah, yeah rate our Twitter. <laughs> yeah, go on Twitter and rate us and subscribe. Just um, tweet us some stars. Oh, that'd be nice. Actually, that does nothing for us, Dan. We need them to no, really stay in the <laughs> the iTunes confinement zone. Um, but yeah, uh, thank you so much Ooh, for listening. B-
0: b- before, before we go, I just wanted to say...
1: Yeah. Uh, it wasn't something that we were
0: asked to mention, but I noticed on social media today that Arrow have obviously got into a collaboration with Agfa. Oh yeah. And so the Arrow video channel, which we do talk about occasionally, um, is going to be getting uh, a collection of Agfa films. They're calling it the Agfa collection volume one. Um, and just looking at the graphics, I noticed that they've got the Kanye Arkin claw that we've talked about on the podcast before. Yeah. uh, And loads of other great stuff also. And this is not a, recommendation per se but it looks like bat pussy is going to get released in england via the arrow video channel
1: yeah so which is, is i haven't go on brave <laughs> yes it is brave and that does make me wonder are is all of this content coming to the uk do you know or is it just the state
0: well i mean like the, this is that's the i don't know it doesn't say but like arrow being a predominantly british uh company when something is us exclusive they always say right
1: yeah that's well we'll we'll find out um so if it is then hell yeah subscribe to the arrow video channel um loads of fantastic stuff on there um yeah great excellent right thank you so much for listening and we yes. promise to be more promise. professional next, next time, time. Bye-bye. <laughs> bye bye